turn in your Bibles over to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Now, if you've been following along on the story right now, you're thinking, what? Well, I'll explain that in a moment. Jonah chapter 4, we'll get there. We're looking at Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Hold that just a moment. Uh, okay, I, I know that I've milked my 50th birthday for all I could. I get that. So this is the last time that I'm going to mention it. It was on Friday, so I am 50 plus now. Uh, I got a lot of interesting gifts, uh, including AARP cards and whatever it is, and somebody gave me a senior coffee discount at McDonald's, all that stuff. But my favorite card was from my own daughter, and it's a card that says amazing, and it's in perfect, it's, it's, and it's perfectly intact. Now, it looks like an archaeologist who's uh, just finished an excavation, they finished a dig, and they found something. So she says, amazing, and it's perfectly intact, and I open it up, she says, Daddy, great news, they found your birth certificate. And so everybody's been, you're supposed to be trying to make me feel better for getting old, but thanks for rubbing it in, all of you 50 and older. I guess no one's immune to getting older. Now, uh, let me set the stage like this. I, I said Jonah 4, Here, here's why, just quickly. Every uh, story, every time uh, a church does this series, the pastor gets one week called Pastor's Prerogative. Uh, he gets to choose a passage that he wants to talk about. Now, don't worry, we're going to finish. We're going to go to uh, Esther, Nehemiah, and then uh, start bridging that gap and enter into the New Testament. But I get one week where I get to talk about one of my favorite narratives because there's so many narratives in the Bible to talk about. I decided to talk about Jonah chapter 4 because it's a heartbeat of our church. If you want to know who we are, this is it. If you want to know what you're part of, this is it. If you're visiting, you want to know what is this church about, what, what, what makes their pastor tick, uh, what's their vision, what are they all about, this is it. You're going to find out today. So you will know the heart that God has for our church, the vision, the calling that we feel God has called us toward, the task that waits for us. Now, having said that, let me set the stage like this. Uh, one of the things I got to enjoy in my birthday was a good friend of mine took me over to Scottsdale, and he has timeshare there, and I got to play golf for three days. And man, it, it beautiful golf course. Now it's 130 degrees, but beautiful. No, no. It wasn't that hot. It was hot, but not that hot. But I had a great time. That was part of my 50th birthday present that he and his family gave. And uh, one of the things we got to do was go to a Dodger game. Now, I know that uh, some of you have been kind of uh, concerned about some of my languaging over the last few years. Uh, I, I decided it, it is time for me to come clean with you, okay? Uh, I am a, a, a Dodger fan, all right? I just want to confess it. Now, that's going to frustrate some of you because the first couple of years I wore red and was an Angels fan, and here's what happened. My friend reminded me of my childhood, took me back to my roots, and, and explained to me that it was not right for me to become an Angel fan just because I was mad at the Dodgers for trading Garvey way back in 1984. <laughs> and there is a time to forgive. And so then he started taking me to Dodger games, and it brought back my childhood and everything, and so... I know who I really am. I, 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 I don't hate angels. I'm not an angel hater. I pull for them too. But my team is the Dodgers. So we were in Arizona. We got to go to a Dodger game. They were playing the Diamondbacks at Diamondback Stadium. If you know anything about the stadium, it was closed in. So they got air conditioned in there. So it's 100 outside, but it's like sweet 75 on the inside. Uh, my friend Anthony got us great seats down uh, near the field. Now, we were there. There were these three guys behind us. They talked loudly for the whole game. And it was nothing to do with the game and nothing to do with baseball. It's like they decided to have a business meeting right behind us. One inning was okay. Two innings we could tolerate. 
But by the sixth inning, we had heard all of their life stories. They were all trying to outdo each other, and we had had enough. Now, the only reason I didn't turn around, the only reason I did not turn around and say, dudes, get a life, is because my wife would have been very upset. She hates it when I do that. And I didn't, I thought, you know, it's my birthday weekend. I don't want to make my wife mad as well. So none of us, even though I did stare at them a few times, they seemed to be oblivious. Now, it ruined the game. We finally just left. I mean, you think about it, they're right behind you. They're not even paying attention to the game. Now, that made me think of something, uh, and I want you to understand here, some of you who've never heard me, you're going to say, well, I can't believe a pastor just said that. Uh, But I'm very honest, very honest, very transparent. It reminded me that there are sometimes you meet people in your life that you don't want to preach the gospel to because you hope they go to hell. (laughs) I mean... Now, not many pastors will tell you that. Uh, I, I, I know it's wrong, okay? I know that. I, I just want to be honest. There are some people in life that you meet, you really don't want to share the gospel. You know, your mother-in-law, you'd rather she just stay on the dark side. You know, somebody that you don't like, your neighbor that gets, uh, you know, wakes you up at 5 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, as I reacted to this person, I, I realized then that God has prepared me for this weekend message because I wasn't very pleased with the thoughts and the attitudes that I had. Now, sometimes you might think, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a good example, but when you think of a guy like Robert Mugabe, what he's doing in Zimbabwe as the prime minister, well, how, he, how he's just padding his Swiss bank account and the children. I, I love Zimbabwe. I love the Shona people. God has called me to them. I try to go once a year and just encourage them. You're digging wells, whether you knew it or not, all over Zimbabwe. You're trying to save Zimbabwe one village at a time, but the evil seems to be outracing, outracing the good that we're trying to do. We're having a hard time keeping up, but we're determined to save these children, save their lives. So part of me thinks, I'm not going to share the gospel with Mugabe. He needs to go to hell. He's been a bad dude. I mean, you think of Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, really bad people. There's part of you thinks, man, they need to stand before God, and I can't wait till they do, right? You don't say it out loud, but there's part of you that says, I can't wait till they stand before God. ISIS, come on now, you know? CNN did a special. I don't know if you saw it, but the fathers were asking their children what they wanted to be when they grew up, and they only gave them two options. Number one, do you want to be a jihadist? Or number two, do you want to be a suicide bomber? So they're asking little kids at a very young age, what do you want to do? You see what I'm saying? Now, I chose Jonah 4 because it brings all this to light. You cannot leave the Old Testament without going through this narrative because it does reveal the heart of our church. It reveals who I am, who you should be, what we're all about. Now, stay with me. I want you to turn to Jonah 4. If you have a Bible, turn there, because I'm going to go verse by verse through it. Before I get there, let me set some background. The background is that God has called a man named Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites are bad people, man. They're into child sacrifice, bestiality, incest. They're into everything. At that time, they were the largest city in the known world, 600,000 people. It's not a big city today, but then it was a large city. They had these magnificent walls that were eight miles long that covered the inner part of the city, a circumference of over 60 miles. Their state policy, and you remember who the Assyrians are now, Nineveh, capital of the Assyrians. You remember who they were? They came in and took the Israelites, God's people, captive. After that, the Babylonians came in, and then Persia will come in. It's just a long story. But the Assyrians came in at one point. Their state policy, you know how... Nations will have a policy or states or communities with no kid left behind, equality for all. Their state policy was this, kill everybody. They 
believed that everyone should die that was not an Assyrian. They taught their children from a very young age, annihilate and obliterate all the Hebrews. They hated, though, and tortured everyone. They were no respecter of persons. They hated everyone equally, and they wanted everyone dead equally. So they tortured men, women, children. They had no allies on planet Earth. They were hated and detested by all. They were hated so much that when the prophet Nahum gives a prophecy about the coming destruction of Assyria that would come, he says this in Nahum uh, chapter 3, verse 19, everyone who hears the news about you claps their hands. Nahum is saying, the Assyrians are so hated, the Ninevites are so hated, the day comes when they will fall, people all over the world will stand They'll say, yeah, you're the ones that killed our family, our friends, our children, our communities. And they'll say, you know, blow the trumpet, sound the horn, ring the bell, ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. And everybody will stand up and give an ovation that your kingdom has come to an end. Now, it's these people, the Ninevites, that God says to Jonah, go preach to them. Go preach to them. People say sometimes to me, you know, God didn't have a heart for people who were not Hebrews in the Old Testament. I think, what, are you crazy? God is sending a Hebrew prophet Jonah to go preach to these Ninevites. But Jonah doesn't want to go. As a matter of fact, if you remember this series I did, I showed you a map. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah gets on a ship at Joppa and goes to Tarshish. Anybody see something wrong with this picture? <laughs> it's the exact opposite direction. He doesn't want to go. So he runs from God. Now that's a sermon in and of itself. And there are many of you who have been running from God all your life. And you think things somehow one day will turn out well. It's not going to. There's a calling on your life a long time ago. It's never too late, never too late. But you've known for a long time God had a calling on you to do something, to go here, to do this. But you've always been afraid. You didn't want to take the risk. And you think somehow your life's going to turn out well. And you might survive it, but it'll never be the life God ultimately had for you. Jonah, what happens to him? He's on this ship and they throw him overboard. Then he gets swallowed by a big fish. And you stay in Jonah 4. You stay there because we're going to get there. But in verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This word appointed here is the Hebrew word for commissioned, and it's usually used for people, but God in this case commissions a great fish. So God speaks well, or God speaks great fish, and God commissions. See, I got a calling on your life well. Pick up Jonah. Oh, where? Well, we've, he's been thrown overboard. Go collect him. Uh, I, I believe that God would have given him a few directions. Uh, you know, uh, swallow, don't chew. Uh, and then I'll tell you what to drop him off. I heard an interesting story from a young girl who said to her teacher at school, when she was asked what her favorite story was, she said, well, my favorite story is the story of Jonah. He got swallowed by the well and lived in the belly of the well. I know the Bible doesn't say well, but she said the well for three days. And the, uh, the teacher said, I'm sorry, honey, but that's not a true story because although whales are large mammals, they have small throats and could never swallow a human. And the little girl said, well, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. It's in the Bible, and I believe it, and God could do a miracle. So my favorite story is Jonah, and he got swallowed by the well. And she said, well, I know that's your favorite story. I'm just telling you it can't possibly be true because whales are large mammals, but they have small throats. And the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And his teacher said, well, her teacher said, well, what if he went to hell? And the little girl said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> and so God says, God says, I'll, I've got Jonah in the water down there. I want you to go pick him up. And then Jonah 2.10 says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. The Hebrew word vomited is a word, it's a crass word. And the narrator, the storyteller is trying to get you to know that when Jonah was 
uh, extricated from the well. It wasn't some kind of angelic escort, and it wasn't kind of beam me to shore. Basically, the well upchucked. Uh, he had a protein spill. He tossed his cookies. He took a ride on the regurgitron. He lost his lunch. You know, he launched from the food shuttle. I, however you want to say it, he was thrown up onto the beach. And at that point, Jonah got it. Jonah, Jonah gets, you know, I probably shouldn't be running from God. And he comes to his senses. Now, he goes and preaches to the people in Nineveh. And something happens. They repent. I mean, this would have been the toughest audience in the known world. Jonah preaches. They relent. They repent. God spares them. You'd think Jonah would be happy. I've just preached the greatest sermon known to man. The Ninevites have repented. Verse 1, Jonah chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What's going on? He hates the Ninevites. He didn't want them to repent. He's preaching his sermon, and underneath his breath, he's thinking, don't repent, don't repent, don't repent. You're burning hell, burning hell, burning hell. He hates it. Kind of like the same attitude I have toward Mugabe. The same attitude that you have toward your next-door neighbor or a co-worker. Now, here's what happens in verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. So he admits he was running from God. He admits, I did not want to go priest to the Ninevites. Then he says, because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, God, I knew this would happen, you kind and gracious, merciful God. Interesting, he wasn't singing that song when he was in the belly of the well or the great fish. God, forgive me, I've sinned against you, please rescue me. And God gives him grace, but he doesn't want to give grace to anybody else. See, Jonah's real problem is he's a prophet and he's supposed to be an expert in sin and grace and forgiveness, but he doesn't have a clue. Now, let me remind you, remember what grace is. Nobody in this room is better than anybody else, right? We all have our issues and nobody in this room is better than anybody outside these walls. The only difference is we've acknowledged that we're sinners and we're saved by the grace of God, but we didn't earn it. It was given to us as a free gift. Now, the measure of grace you've received, this grace is not meant to be kept. It's meant to be given away. And the greater your understanding of how much grace God gave you to bring you into his community, then the more willing you are going to be to extend it to other people. The shallower your understanding of grace, the more angry you're going to be with people around you. The problem with Jonah is he's like me and you. He thinks that he's actually better than the Ninevites because he's a Hebrew or because he's in God's family. He thinks that God chose the nation of Hebrews because of something they did rather than out of pure grace. And he thinks somehow his sins are not as intense or bad as the Ninevites. It's not that Jonah believes God can't save the Ninevites. Jonah believes God should not save the Ninevites. It's almost like Jonah says, God, we've got to draw the line somewhere. Not just anybody can get in, you know? And Lamoe says this, you can tell you've made God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. <laughs> Verse 3, now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to live, to die rather than to live. Can you believe? He wants to die. What a baby. I mean, he's preached to the Nineveh. It's been great revival. They've repented. They've relented. And he, he's crying, he, God, just kill me, kill me now. And this is so adolescent. It's almost like, God, if the Ninevites come in, I don't want to be in. It's like the little boy on the basketball field or basketball court at playground. If we don't play by my rules, I'm taking my ball and going home. Jonah says, if the Ninevites are in, I'm out. you got to be kidding me. The Ninevites get in, then kill me, kill me dead. 
And in verse 4, God says, is it right for you to be angry? When God asks a question, he always wants the prophet to open up within his own assumptions. He's saying, Jonah, think, is it really wrong for me to forgive somebody who repents? Are there some sins that are too great to be forgiven? Jonah, did you receive everything you received by works or by grace? Jonah, have you earned anything that you have? Really? I mean, Jonah, should I, should I give the Ninevites what they really deserve? Jonah, should I give the Israelites what they really deserve? Jonah, should I give you what you really deserve? Now, what happens next is vintage God. It's classic. Now, stay with me. The prophets are used by God as kind of these uh, creative uh, displays. You know how when somebody says something to you all the time, over and over and over, after a while you be, become immune to it. You just you get used to the language, right? It's kind of like my sermons, right? <laughs> you come in every week, I've heard this before, right? And you kind of shut me out. I'm okay with that, but I'm still watching. <laughs> what God did with the prophets, he would have them act out a message God wanted Israel to hear because he knew that a visual was often much more powerful than just words. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing for God to say to people, I send, I'm going to send my son to die for you, but if you would have seen Jesus, you get a Jesus revelation, it changes everything. Now, a good example of that is what God does with uh, the prophet Hosea and Gomer. Remember, God is trying to communicate to Israel how unfaithful they have been to God. So what God does, he takes his prophet Hosea, and he has Hosea marry a prostitute, Gomer, so that the Israelites will see every day how God feels about them. Because people will come up to Hosea and say, Hosea, you're a righteous, blameless man. How on earth could you be married to such an unfaithful person like Gomer? And every time they did that, Hosea would respond, I'll answer you if you answer me. My question to you is, how on earth could God be married to a people who are so unfaithful like us? You see? So every day they got to see that. Now, here's how it works. Usually, when God wants to communicate something, every time in the Bible, he would put the prophet on the stage the prophet, you'd be able to look at the prophet and his life, and then the audience would be the Israelites. So they're the audience, the prophet's on stage, God would be the director of the play, and whatever's happening in the prophet's life, you're supposed to learn. That happens every time in the Bible, except once. Guess where? Jonah. And in Jonah, God flips it. Jonah now is the audience, and there's a play, and God is directing it. And in the play, you have the sun, and you have a gourd, a plant, you have a worm, and you have the east wind. And all of these symbols matter to a great degree. Because after Jonah sees the Ninevites repent, he goes, the Bible tells us, east of the city. Now, that's not just there for a random uh, uh, kind of a wording. The, the, again, the narrator, the Hebrew narrative is trying to, trying to point something out. What, this is the Bible's way of showing us that Jonah is opposing God. He's protesting. Because Israel always... Uh, was next, the landmass was next to the Mediterranean Sea, and all the enemies of Israel lay to the east. So anytime the Bible started using the eastern terminology, it was trying to show you that these are people far from God. So Jonah, what does he do? He goes east of the city in protest, says, God, if the Ninevites are in, I'm out, and he goes and starts to weep. He, he starts to complain and murmur and grumble. A good example is when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they go where? East of Eden. When Cain kills Abel, he goes east to the land of Nod. And now we have Jonah leaving. He goes east. East is the name of the place of God's enemies. Now, as Jonah goes east, he sits out on this plateau looking over the city, hoping that God will still destroy the Ninevites even though they repented. And so here's what happens. Let me describe it and then I'm going to read it to you. 
Jonah is hot. He's boiling inside because the people repent and he thinks God might save them. But he's also boiling on the outside because God sent a vehement, the Bible says, King James Version, a strong east wind. Notice from the east, a violent wind of heat. So he's burning on the inside. He's burning on the outside. And then you know what God does? While Jonah's sitting there feeling sorry for himself, God causes this vine to grow up over Jonah, provide some shade. Now, shade is powerful imagery to an Israelite because they live in the desert. As a matter of fact, Psalm 121 says, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. Shade is an imagery of God's divine and omnipotent protection. So Jonah, in his mind, see, he gets it. In his mind, when he sees this plant grow up miraculously and cover his head, he's got shade. He's saying, God's going to change his mind because God now is protecting me. And I've, I've been whining here, and I'm going to get what I want. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. The, little Hebrew, the literal Hebrew there is to deliver him from evil. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. <laughs> I cannot describe to you how strong this language is in the Hebrew. What a temperament, what a moody dude, man. First of all, he's out there, oh, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I preached, they repented. Well, I don't want them to repent. My God, you're gracious, merciful, and kind. And I'm going to go out east of the city and protest. I don't like you right now, God. Just kill me, kill me dead. God gives him a plant. Oh, this feels good. <laughs> and then he gets shaved and he goes, yay. I mean, he, he wanted to die five minutes ago. And now he's thinking, yay, I love shade, 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 I love shade. Now, you and I look at that and we think, man, this dude really likes shade. No, no. Remember, Jonah's watching the play, and shade is the imagery in the Hebrew mind for victory over my enemies. So Jonah's enemies are the Ninevites. When God causes the shade to grow over Jonah, he thinks God has given him a message that I've changed my mind, I'm going to destroy your enemies, and I'm going to give you the sovereign victory. Now, here's what you discover in the book of Jonah. God has more difficulty saving Jonah than he does saving Nineveh. And you start to realize the book of Jonah is not about the evil Ninevites. It's about the evil in the heart of Jonah. Do you know what the message of Jonah is? I'm going I'm to finish the story, but just stay with me. Do you know what the message of Jonah is? This narrative? The message is this, that all people matter to God. All of them. Your neighbor who has those beer-guzzling parties on the weekend and plays his music so loud and keeps everybody awake. God loves that man. Your co-worker who uses profanity and spreads pornography around the office, God loves that man. The man who's homeless, jobless, God loves that man. God simply does not think in the categories that we think. He doesn't say, these are the kind of people that I'll pursue, but I'm not going to pursue these kind of people. These are the kind of people that I'm very interested in. I have little to no interest in these people. These are not my kind of people. These are my kind of people. These people are worth saving. These people are not worth saving. To God, all people, all of them matter to him. Now, I am not saying that God condones the behavior. I'm not saying that you should condone their behavior. I am not saying that sin should not anger you. I am not saying that you shouldn't take a stand lovingly for what is right. I'm simply saying that you do it in a way that reaches out because deep down in your heart, there is a sadness that there is somebody 
who is separated from God, and in your deepest heart, you want them to come near. Remember when Pastor Phil told us about when his first wife was murdered down in L.A., and his 10-year-old boy was in the back seat? He watched his mom shot and killed. And that his son Josh, as he got older, remember what he did? He went to the prison, sought out the man who killed his own mother to say to the man that he forgave him. I'm not saying that Josh should have said, let him out of prison. He needs to be in prison. God is a God of justice. But I am saying that as an individual, Josh did the right thing. There's somebody far from God that needs to come near to God. No matter who they are, you're never too far from God to be received back by God. All people matter to God. Muslims, atheists, New Age people, Hindus, Buddhists, occultists, the sexually immoral, murderers. All of these people keep God up at night. When anyone is separated from God, God tears up. It drives him crazy. It breaks his heart. The question I have for you is, people far from God keep God up at night. Do they keep you up at night? Or are there people that you say, I'm not preaching the gospel to them. They're too bad. They're like the Ninevites. I hope they go to hell. If you do that, you still haven't understood grace and what it took to rescue you. Now, I want to give you a warning there. Some of you in the room, you hear this, and you're on the opposite side. You're saying, man, I love this church. I'm an Ninevite. I got so much sin in my life. But you got to forgive me, man. It's right there in the Bible. Yes, if you repent. If you repent. Grace is beautiful, but it comes after repentance. And then God will give it a truckload and more to you to say that, oh, I don't have to change. I don't have to do anything. That says that God is not a God of judgment. Because let's be honest, the Ninevites are one case. The Amalekites are another. God waited patiently for 400 years for the Amalekites to repent. They did not God wiped them out. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is kind. But there comes a day of judgment for all of us. And grace is plentiful, but it is plentiful to those who say, I now realize I am a sinner and that I need salvation that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, and all those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you don't call on the name of the Lord, the patience of God will run out. And there will be a day when you and I will stand before God and give an account for the manner in which we've lived. This is not a free license. This is to show you that God loves everyone, that God is awake at night for people who are far from Him. And His brother, you know, what He would rather, as we say in the South, what He really wants to happen is repentance. So He's patient year after year after year. But the time comes. God is also just. And you will stand before God. And the only saving grace that you have is saving grace the cross of Jesus Christ. So the ultimate question becomes, what have you done with him? Not that you're perfect, but what'd you do with him? Because Jesus says, I'm going to leave my home and I'm going to go to my own Nineveh. And I'm going to do for those people what they could not do for themselves. And I'm going to offer them grace and forgiveness. And then all those who come in are going to form this little community. And this little community, they're going to be people from all walks of life, from every culture, every language, every background, And the word foreigner is never going to be used in this little community called the church because there's no such thing as a foreigner in my church. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's received. All who call on the name of the Lord because all people matter to God. Folks, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? What is our problem? 
We all have it. I mean, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the pastor for crying out loud. You know, I'm 50 years old now. Well, I said I wasn't going to mention that. Okay. I'm older now. You'd think by now I'd get some of this stuff right in my life and that you would too. But still yet, when you see somebody that walks in here that's not like you or that you think, man, who's this person? You still go the wrong direction. Instead of your heart melting, often we judge somebody. We just write them off and hope they don't sit beside us. People matter to God. Now look what happens in verse 7. At dawn, because Jonah doesn't get this, at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. So here we got a miraculous worm. It's a fast-eating worm too because he devours the plant. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. My goodness, this guy's a basket case. Kill me, kill me dead. First, an Ninevites repented, kill me. Now this plant died. Kill me again. Again, it goes to show you God doesn't answer every prayer or Jonah would be dead. Verse 9, Jonah said, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? First he says in verse 4, is it right for you to be angry at all? Now, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? See, God's given him a, a test. And Jonah says, it is. And I'm so angry I want to die. My goodness, what a little bit. He doesn't have shade now. Kill me, kill me dead. But the Lord said, verse 10, you've been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals? Now, I want you to look at this. This is very crucial. Jeff, you said there were 600,000 Ninevites. But here it says, should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand? This Hebrew terminology is terminology for children before the age of accountability. 120,000 who cannot tell their right from their left. The Bible speaks about an age of accountability. There are scriptures in Isaiah. In Romans 5, 13, it says, where there is no law, there is no sin. There's a point in a child's life which they're not held responsible because there's no understanding of the law. God is saying to Jonah, you want me to go and destroy the Ninevites, but there's 120,000 children there. Should I not care for them? And I love this last line. And then as an afterthought, God says, and also many animals. Don't you love that? He said, I love animals too. Those donkeys didn't do anything, man. I'm not going to just, I mean, come on, man. I like, I'm, I'm fond of uh, nanny goats, I am. I... Even in the Bible, when sacrifice is required, the animal's life was to be taken quickly, painlessly as possible. God never condoned cruelty to animals of any kind. They were used for our purposes, but never to be treated cruelly. And God said to Jonah, you've got 120,000 children here, and you've got, you got the animals. The problem in the book of Jonah are, is twofold. One, there's a problem with Nineveh, but the bigger problem is Jonah. What am I going to do about the evil in his heart? And he doesn't understand that all people matter to me. So the second question, do people far from God matter to you? Now let me finish the story, and then we'll finish the sermon, Okay. So when these three guys behind us at Dodger Stadium, or sorry, at uh, Diamondback Stadium, kept talking, I was very frustrated. So I did what any mature man would do. I went and told on them. <laughs> I went to the usher up on our row, and I said, ma'am, we've been here for six and a half innings. These guys have been talking nonstop. 
They don't drop a lot of profanity, but they've dropped some. And, you know, I've got a family here, and, you know, we'd not be able to watch the game because they're not even talking about the game. They're just talking really loud. I've, I've glanced at them a few times, but they don't get the hint. She apologized. She said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you've had this experience. I wish you would have come up here earlier. And then she said, I'm sorry, sir, but Dodger fans are just like that. <laughs> she, she judged Dodger fans because they weren't Dodger fans. They were Diamondback fans. And I realized she did the very same thing that I had done. Automatically jumped to a conclusion. These guys were probably oblivious to what they were doing. I don't know what I could have done, but probably something better than I did. What I should have done is unleash Anthony McMahon's wife, Vivian McMahon. <laughs> because she has a way of really just disciplining you while at the same time loving you and somehow edging the gospel in there. It's an art, you know. But instead, I was just angry and I just wanted to leave. And you know, how many times have I said to you, why does God keep putting me in these situations? I woke up because maybe he trusts me and he wants me to use my gift to somehow reach people who are far from God to come near to God. So I am ready for the next time three people behind me start talking really loud at a Dodger game. Of course, we all, we all know Dodger fans don't do that. I've been to Dodger games, I don't know how many times, and they are polite, they are kind. I've always said, the safest place in the world is Dodger Stadium if you have a Dodger shirt on. <laughs> if you don't, you're taking your life in your own hands. But I digress. Do people matter? I, just That neighbor that you're behind, the, beside, the co-worker that you detest, have you ever stopped to think that it's not an accident? God brought you there for the purpose of caring about somebody who's far to God, from God and bringing them near to God. This is who we are. It's who I am. This is the call of God on my life and your life. There is no reason. There's no reason whatsoever that there should not be a new believer in your life every year. That there's somebody you invest in all the time. I want to ask you to do, the sermon's over. Well, the textual part. I want to ask you to do four things and they'll move quickly and I'll finish. The first thing is this. I'm asking you to do for one what you wish you could do for all. This is not original with me. I borrowed it from Andy Stanley about 10 years ago, but I loved it, and I've used it since. I know you can't save the whole world, but you can save one. You can invest in one life, one. And if it took you 10 years, my fear is that I get to heaven, and Jesus says to me, hey, welcome, good and faithful servant. And he says, all that grace I gave you, what did you do with it? Well, I kept it to myself. You mean there's nobody with you, Jeff? The grace you've received is meant to be given to somebody else. And there are so many people around you, they're just waiting on somebody to love them. It may be difficult, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but if you invest in more than one conversation over time, the right time, the right place, will you do for one what you wish you could do for all? If you're part of CCV, we ask you, that at every point in time in your life that you're investing in one person who's far from God to bring them near. Here's the second thing. Most of you are familiar with this diagram. We've been drawing it for a long time. Let's go past that to the diagram. I'll come back to that. I'm asking you to make your own version of this. Maybe a painting on your wall at home. Maybe a painting on your office wall. This is a great conversation starter 
And sooner or later, somebody will come and ask you, hey, I've been seeing this in your office cubicle. I've seen this in your home. I've seen, maybe you have a little card, and every time it's your time to pay for lunch, take a crowbar to your wallet. And as it falls out, there's this card with this on it. Everybody should have this somewhere on their person. So that sooner or later, somebody would say, hey, I've noticed you have this. What is this? And then you're able to say lovingly and gently, I have this as a reminder that I was separated from God because of my sin. And I'm not saying we're Egyptians and we worship the sun god. I just think if you write God there, it'll just, it won't give you that inroad. Just put something there that represents God. I was separated from God because of my sin. This is to remind me that I'm saved by grace. And then you draw the cross. Jesus died for me so that I could cross over into relationship. Now, say it in a nice way. Okay, let me give you an example of how not to do this. All right? Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I've noticed this has been on your wall for a long time. What is it? I'll tell you what it is. This is you, man. You're going to hell. All this sin in your life, you're separated from God. If you don't do something, man, you're doomed. Don't do that way. That, that, that's not going to work. Don't talk about them. You talk about you. Talk about you. I am a sinner. I was separated from God because of my sin. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I have now entered into relationship, and my eternity is secure. Just say something simple like that, and then ask the person if you can pray for them. I've still yet had no one reject my offer to pray for them. Make this part of your life somewhere. Three, on October the 19th, I'm going to walk out on this stage with no notes, and I'm going to deliver a gospel message because that's where we are in the story at that point. I'm really going to preach a message that's the culmination of 27 years of research on the Passion Week of Jesus. And I'm going to come out and I'm going to preach the gospel message. Your job is to get that one life here so that there's not an empty seat in this place. Your job is not to convert anybody. Your job is just to get them an earshot of the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they hear unless he's sent? I have been sent to Christ Church of the Valley. I am here. You get them an earshot. And I will preach the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to open their eyes and convert. And I think if we took this seriously, you'd start praying right now that God would do whatever he has to do to bring that person into this place on that weekend, the weekend of October 19th, and then trust God to do the rest. I hear stories all the time about people who come, and once they come the first time, they're hooked. But getting in here that first time, you're going to face a battle. Because if that's true, the devil knows that. You've got to be strong. You've got to be courageous. Somehow get them here. Fourth and finally, when you came in, you were given this card. It's a sticker. Some of you saw them on the back of your seats, and you thought the seats were saved. They weren't. These are people in the services before you. And I ask everybody to write down the name of the person that God has laid on your heart and to paste it on the back of that chair. And praying in confidence and faith that as you pray, God's going to move. And when October 19th comes around, they're going to be sitting in that chair. And they're going to hear the gospel. Now let me say again, it's not your job to convert. You should feel no pressure on this. This is a covenant you're making with God. You're going to pray that God opens a door at some point for you to be able to speak into their lives and invite them. So you're praying that God is the one that moves and you're at the right place at the right time and that's not a hard task for God. But you're writing down the name of the person who's far from God that you'd like to see come near and you're going to paste it on the back of the chair and leave it there. You're going to do that 
during one of my favorite songs. It's a secular song, but the words are powerful. It's a song called How to Save a Life. And as Jeremiah comes out to do that song, I'm going to ask you to take that time. We're going to bolt the back doors. Nobody gets to leave. Service not over yet. And I, you're early. Jeremiah's going to do the song. You write down the name, paste it on the back, and then I'll come out and we'll end the service together. Okay? Just quickly before you do that. Last night I went to visit my friend Izzy. And Izzy is near the end. It's been a hard one. I would say it's a matter of hours now. I'm hoping that it's not. And I still believe God can do something miraculous. But if you're a pastor and you've been around death enough, you know that death is knocking at the door. My friend Clive Rahurui, who has spent countless days and hours with Izzy, he and I went over there last night and just took a photo of Izzy and us together, maybe one last time. What you don't know about Izzy is he's not afraid. He's more concerned about everybody else around him than he is himself. What you also don't know is that Izzy's here because somebody saw him and invested in him to get him here. Because when Izzy was found, he was a drug addict, an alcoholic, and he had destroyed, basically, his body. But somebody said, here's a man that God can rescue. Nobody's too far. And because of that, Izzy's life is not over. It's just beginning. When you begin to have a heart for somebody who's far from God and you bring them near, you change not only one life, you change the lives of everyone around them. Izzy may go to be with God today. I'm hoping that I can get there by five or by seven, one of the times after the service, and to see him again. Don't feel sorry for Izzy. Izzy knows what's awaiting. But had somebody not invested in him, think about the sadness and the frustration. Write the name down and see what God will do. Father, I thank you and I praise you for the power of this narrative. And I would ask you in Jesus' name right now, as Jeremiah comes and sings and we all sit in contemplation, that if we don't have the name of a one life, that, Father, you would give that name to us. Father, I pray that you'd open our eyes. We pray as a congregation for our brother Izzy, and we continue to pray for a miracle. But we know the miracle will come. The question is either on this side or the next. But that Izzy will be made well. No more pain, no more suffering. No more problems with bleeding internally. No more problems with kidney failure. No more problems with liver damage. None of that problem. It'll all be made well. And I pray for us to have the heart that you so desperately communicated to Jonah that those who are far from God would come near. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.